Well, I'm glad to see you tonight. I'm glad we are together to praise our God, to give glory to our King, and to edify one another in our walk of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think about this concept that is brought out in this particular passage? When you think of what is said in 1 Timothy chapter 6.15 about sovereignty. Sovereignty. You know, that's a word that we don't necessarily use much in our day-to-day speech. But it carries with the idea, the one who is sovereign is someone who has supreme power. He's supreme in his power. He may be supreme in his rank, and he may be supreme in his authority. God, our Father, is sovereign. And so is his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, likewise, is sovereign. He is the one who is supreme in power and in rank, as well as authority. He's not just supreme in one of those areas. God the Father and God the Son are supreme. They are sovereign in all of those areas. And as the one who is the sovereign over all rule, over all authority and power, over all kinds of dominion and principalities, therefore, the sovereign God and the sovereign king is to be heeded. He is to be obeyed, meaning his instructions are to be followed and his commandments are to be upheld. The scriptures are inspired of God, meaning they are inspired of the one who is the sovereign over all authority, powers, and principalities. Think about that. God the Father, God the Son, And God, the Holy Spirit, have spoken. God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, have spoken. And men, we as men, and all men for that matter, ought to give their full attention to what has been spoken, to what has been said, what has been revealed. Mankind, or man in general though, has the tendency to question authority. Man has the tendency to test rules. We have the tendency to sometimes push against standards to see how much man or we can get away with. You know, there is a saying that sometimes is heard, and you probably have heard it at some point in your life, that rules are made for what? They are made to be broken. Now, that saying, that expression illustrates what? It illustrates the frequent mindset of the majority. (laughs) That's what that says. It really illustrates what the mindset of people in general have People who do not want to submit, because if you have to submit, that means it puts a restraint on your actions. Or it puts a restraint on the fact that, well, you want to justify wrongdoing. 
And so this, well, rules are made to be broken. Kind of gives a justification to a person who already is probably doing wrong. He's already breaking some rule. It may be a, a rule at work or maybe a rule at school or whatever. It may be some rule that has been put in place for a purpose and you just don't like it. And so they may say, well, rules are made to be broken. And they go ahead and do what they want to do. Now, we're not here to talk about the world's rules. But you think about the idea. The worldly-minded the worldly minded person approaches, you know, what is their approach toward divine authority? What is their approach toward divine rules? Divine restraints or constraints? Well, their approach, generally speaking, it's very casual to the point of being disrespectful in one way or another. That's the world's view of what God has said, what God has spoken, what God has set in place, and the rules that God has put before us. A disregard of divine authority, though, has serious consequences. And the reason why is because God's rules are not made to be broken. That's why. So this evening, so we're going to talk a little bit about this you know, as it relates to the, uh, the overall kind of uh, thought or theme of authority. And that is, you know, there are consequences for disregarding divine authority. But let's start with a passage in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2. Where very simply what I want to you know, kind of lay down here at the beginning is the very s- simple fact that disobedience of divine law or laws, disobedience of divine law is unacceptable. <laughs> you know, we've got to have a mindset that disobedience to divine law is not acceptable. The world doesn't care, generally speaking, but if we're going to have the proper attitude and respect for God and his word, for God and his sovereign authority, we understand that disobedience of whatever law that we're talking about is unacceptable. In Ephesians chapter 2, it begins by talking about how we were dead, talking to Christians, and before putting on Christ, before calling on the name of the Lord you know, to be saved, Before that time period, before that moment, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he's been describing what that death was like in verse 2. That death was one where we formerly walked according to the course of the... We were worldly. That's part of the description. We were worldly when we were the living dead there. He goes on also to say that it was according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the son's disobedience. What I wanted you to just note here, as you see in the PowerPoint, is this. The spirit of disobedience, the spirit of disregarding the sovereign authority of the universe has its origin and has its allegiance to Satan. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. But I believe Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 bring that out. When we, were in, when we were dead in our sin, following the course of this world, our allegiance was 
to Satan. Because Satan is the father of lies. He is, he is the supreme example of what true rebellion you know, is against God. He is the ultimate adversary to God, but also he's the ultimate adversary to mankind. So we need to understand that disobedience to divine authority is unacceptable because it puts us at enmity with our creator, with a God who loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to make atonement for us. So therefore, God, the judge of all mankind, through his son, tells us, for example, staying in Ephesians, Ephesians, the book, turn over to chapter five, he tells us here that God the judge one day is gonna pour out his wrath on whom? Well, it's gonna be on all the sons of disobedience. And so you, you see that here in the fifth chapter. Let's just very quickly read verses three through six. When he says, okay, talking to Christians now who were dead in sin, but are no longer dead in sin. They're alive in Christ, but a new life in Christ calls for you know, a proper response in our accounting to the one who redeemed us. And so he says to Christians, to you and me, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So here you've got this whole idea. Here's God. Here's God. He says, you shouldn't be doing this. Why is that? Verse, two, verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, what things? The things he's just described. A spirit of disobedience that is reflected or manifested through these various sins, he says, it is for these, th- you know, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's gonna pour out his wrath against disobedience. Why is that? Well, because all sin is a disregard for the sovereignty of his authority. And when men try to deceive you with words about God or deceive you with words about God's authority or deceive you with words about God's expectations of you and God's judgment of you, when they try to deceive you with that, don't listen to them. And so that's why Paul says, let no one deceive you, brothers, Let no one deceive you with empty words, he said, because God is going to do this. God is going to pour his wrath out on sons of disobedience. There is a right and there is a wrong, and it is God who decides. Not you, not me, and not anybody else in the world. Even though the world wants to change the standard, and surely, surely we're seeing where that is leading. And so we see this increase of depravity all around us. So let's look at a few examples. The examples I'm going to have us turn to are not you know, you know, you know, shocking examples. They're very familiar examples. But I want you to look at examples and see, okay, God pouring his wrath out on disobedience. So let's start with our first example in Genesis 6. Good place to start, don't you think? 
the ancient world, the ancient world which was so set on doing evil, it was a world set on doing evil, what happened to it? It was destroyed by a global flood. That's what happened to it. God's wrath was poured out upon mankind in the lifetime of Noah. And so you look there in verse 5, 6, and 7. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. The world was destroyed by God, and it was, it was his sovereign right to do so. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? If we had lived in the days of Noah's, it was God's right to destroy the world in which we lived in. It was not ours. It was God's. And he could no longer suffer any longer. He had to do something. Now, even though there is evidence, you talk about the series you had, there is evidence that it can be observed to support the idea that there has been, a thousand years ago, you know, a global catastrophic event on earth. There is evidence that supports that. Modern man, though, wants to ignore the biblical record of the flood. They don't, they don't want to accept God's explanation, God's account of what, why there is evidence for this catastrophic event. They want to ignore that. My opinion is the reason why, the main reason why mankind, modern man, does not want to accept the story of the flood is because of spiritual and moral reasons. That's the reason. That's at the root of it, I believe. Because if you accept the biblical account, what does it say about man's accountability? Well, people don't want to be accountable. People don't want to be accountable, particularly to a holy God that has a high standard and holds us accountable to that standard. I think that's the reason why the majority of mankind ignores the biblical record of what the flood was all about. The flood was all about God's wrath being poured out on the sons of disobedience. That's what it's all about. But what we do learn when we, by faith, carefully look into this text is, and we see just kind of shouting out to, to us this fact that wickedness has dire consequences. Wickedness has dire consequences. Evil hearts and evil actions are measured by God's standard. That's what the flood, you know, the flood's all about. God had a standard, but man would not live by it. And they became evil in their hearts. They became evil in their attention. They became evil in their action. And God decided to do something about it. 
because his sovereign authority was disregarded by the human race that he created. What we need to think about is men do not decide what is evil. You and I do not decide what is evil. God does. God, the sovereign one, and Christ, the sovereign one, through the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, they decide what the standard is, what the measure is. And so what we find here is here is you know, corruption and violence filled the earth. You know, just, you know, it, it filled the earth because men corrupted their ways. Look at what, what the Holy Spirit continues to explain or describe to us in this Jesus account. Picking up at verse 11, he says, and he talking, I'm, I'm in the wrong passage here. I flip back to where my hand was. In Genesis chapter you know, 6, yeah, flipped it back to Ephesians. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. That's what God is seeing. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh, now listen, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said, no, the end of all flesh has come before me, or it is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Why? Because men corrupted their ways. You know, God created man. And God set man on a right course that he was to take. But man corrupted that. And to veer from the God-ordained purpose and the God-ordained path that the sovereign one has set is to rebel against sovereign authority. And, the, and there will always be dire consequences to that. And so, in verse 17, God tells Noah, after giving instruction about the ark, he says, Behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Wicked men were drowned because they refuse to turn to righteousness. You need, you need to envision, envision that by faith. God drowned mankind because they were so evil, so wicked. There's consequences to disregarding the one who is the sovereign of all authorities, supreme. Another example, you have God's servant Moses. God's servant Moses who bore the consequences, a, a consequence of a sin in Numbers 20. As you're turning there, just think about this. In Hebrews chapter 11, we won't turn there and read it, but in Hebrews chapter 11, you've got the verses that highlight Moses' faith. And the Holy Spirit now, not the writer of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, chose Moses' life to exemplify act of faith which believes God and seeks him. And so he is an exemplary man of faith. Not perfect. Not one without sin as Jesus. And not one who didn't have to suffer consequences of action that he took. In spite of the fact, his life and his faith is commended to us. But still, there was a consequence 
that he had to live with until his last breath. And so in Numbers 20, you have the account where they are in, you know, here, the wilderness of, of, of Zen, you know, and near Kadesh, uh, and verse two, there's no water. So this is not the first occasion that they've had this need. Previously, that need was supplied, you know, by God. So again, there is this need, there's no water, but as is customary to these stubborn, rebellious, hard-headed children of God, they start complaining to Moses about this. And basically, you know, God's brought us out here to die, you know. And so, you know, it's not just a complaint against Moses, it's really a complaint against God here, you know. And so you've got the complaint in verse 3 and 4 and 5. And, and so in verse 6, picking up our reading here, in verse 6, is then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to them. So they heard the complaint. They're taking it to God, Moses and Aaron. So they go to the doorway of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord appeared to Moses and Aaron. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and, the, and their beasts drink. And so Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we be bring forth water for you out of the rock? And then Moses lifted up his head, hand, excuse me, struck the rock twice with his rod. Water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. And then verse 12. Familiar verse to you. So we read it again. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me. That's interesting. Hear this great exemplary man of faith, and he still is. The Holy Spirit chose him as one of the men to be recorded in Hebrews 11. But in this moment, as God rebukes him for his behavior, he says to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses failed to treat Jehovah holy in the sight of Israel on this occasion. And if, I, if I'm understanding the reading of the text properly, the Israelites did not hear what God exactly told Moses to do. God spoke to Moses. It's Moses and Aaron who came before the Lord at the door of the tent. And I think, my understanding is they didn't hear what God told Moses. And Moses did take, he takes the rod, rod just like God said he was supposed to take that rod. And Moses did, and Aaron, they assembled God's people just like God told them to assemble the people. They did all of that, but he did not properly speak to the rock. But addressed the people with a question and then hit the rock twice. This was a moment a moment of disregarding God's authoritative instruction. Just a moment. 
happened that quick. And it led to painfully sorrowful consequence. Now, God brought the water out of the rock that the people needed. God provided the water. He always took care of his, of his children in the wilderness. But God's punishment for Moses' disobedience was he was not allowed to enter the very land that he had been laboring diligently to reach. All the, all the work and all the frustration, all that he did for God, he didn't get to go in. He got to see it. And it's all because he sinned. He did not believe God and did not treat God wholly in what he did and what he said. And there's a consequence. He still had to lead that hard-headed kids to the River Jordan. He had to take them to the River Jordan. It's not like his job's done. <laughs> oh, okay. Let someone else do this now. I'm not going to enter, so forget it. No, he still, had to, he still had to complete the mission that God expected him to complete. But he had to live with the consequence. Another example in Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. We have where you have Israel, the nation, after the days of Joshua. After the days of Joshua, you have Israel... Failing to finish the job, failing to finish the mission they were given to complete. They didn't finish it, and as a result, they had to repeatedly suffer the consequences of their disobedience. And so you pick up here in Judges chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in the fall, following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. And they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Those were, they were left there and they were told to finish the job. And they didn't. And so guys, okay, you're gonna live with the consequence now. Your sinful attitudes, your sinful actions where you are breaking my covenant, you are not listening to my voice. He says, I'm leaving them all there in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. I think what he implies, you think about verse 15 here, you know, previous to our reading, it talks about whenever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. Now, God was constantly showing compassion and long suffering with them. And you see that throughout, you know, the period of the judges. He, he suffered long with his disobedient children, but he was faithful and true to his word. God never approved of their disobedience. 
God never condoned their disobedience. He disciplined them. And they disciplined them time and time again with affliction and oppression, but they never really learned the lesson. You know, God would give them some peace, some rest, but they hadn't been converted. They weren't converted. And so God righteously, God righteously chose not to drive out the nations because Israel broke the covenant. Israel refused to listen to them. And it says they did not abandon their practices of idolatry. Their stubborn ways would not abandon. They would not put to death those evil things, the practice of idolatries. And so what happened? They constantly suffered at the hands of God's disfavor. God tested their obedience. And what did they reap? They reaped the seeds of their disobedience. That's what they reaped. They kept failing the test over and over and over again. Why is that? Because there's consequences for disregarding the authority of the one who is your ultimate sovereign king and ruler and God. So therefore, bringing up more to our period of time, does our merciful and gracious Father and Lord, do, do, do they simply overlook now a believer's disobedience? Well, no. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, they don't. But let's look at the scripture. Because it really doesn't matter what I say about it, does it? What matters, what does the Spirit say? What does the Son say? What does the Father say? That's what matters. So remember such passages as these found in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, where a failure to do God's will is described as lawlessness. Meaning, when you don't obey God's will, you are a lawbreaker. And lawbreakers deserve to pay a penalty. They deserve to suffer the punishment of breaking the law, whatever that, that punishment is. And so you see here in these verses when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's, it's the one who is doing the will of my Father. That's the one that God's looking for. The one who is a doer, or obeyer of the will of the heavenly Father. And he goes on to say in verse 1, and there's going to be a lot of people. Many will say. How many? I don't know. But the Lord says Many. Many will say, Lord, but didn't I do this and didn't I do that in your name? But he says, but I will declare to them. Jesus says, I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Failure to do God's will is lawlessness. And what does it lead to? It leads to God rejecting us. That's what it leads to. It leads to God rejecting us. The only sovereign who can save you. If your redeemer and savior rejects you, you have no other savior. Mark also speaks of this as well over in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, when Jesus, on a different occasion... Where Jesus emphasizes the idea of how 
Worship of God becomes vain when the worshiper of God neglects to keep God's commandments. He's worshiping over here, but he's not doing God's commandments. And he says, and that person's worship is vain. And so Mark chapter 7, you look there in verse 8. He says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of, of men, to men. And so here is Jesus talking to his audience, primarily look in verse 1, the Pharisees and the scribes who are all concerned that the disciples forgot to wash their hands before they ate. And so Jesus addresses the root problem, you know, the washing of hands is not the problem, the problem is your heart. He says, you are vain worshipers of God because you are neglecting to do what God is telling you, has told you to do in the law. That's what Jesus says, but a disregard of authority. In the same chapter, in verse 20, he says, that which proceeds out of man's describing sin. Where does sin come from? It is a rebellion against God having its allegiance and origin with the ultimate adversary of mankind, but it begins in our heart. He says, that which proceeds out of, the, out of man, out of the heart of man, that is what defiles the man. When I disregard God in my sin, what have I done? I have defiled myself. Those are some tr- strong concepts. We need to remember these words. Very familiar verses that you need to have engraved, cut in your memory. For your own benefit, but also to help others see the consequences of disregarding the authority of God and Jesus Christ. Consider Acts 5. What would Ananias and Sapphira tell you about the consequences of disregarding divine authority? What would they have to say about this subject? You remember, they died because they lied to the Spirit and God. They died on that spot because of that sin. Now, God's not striking dead every liar on earth. But God punished these two Christians, you know, for lying to him on this particular occasion. And in so doing, he was just, whether you believe that or not, and whether you can swallow that pill or not. He was just, and he was righteous, and he was holy. He was right in what he did. And then in verse 11 of that same chapter of Acts 5, it says, now, okay, what's now what is the reaction? What is the response of the community of Christians, the church? What is their response to you know, those, the, those who did see it? There's a few that kind of witnessed it and were right there to the point, and that, and that, that event spread very quickly among the brethren in Jerusalem. Remember, you're talking about thousands of Christians. It says, great fear came over the whole church. I'll pull a Leland here. You need to underline that word whole. Great fear came upon the whole church. Why is that? Because in that moment, they understood the consequences of disregarding the authority 
of the one and truly only sovereign God. Should that not be our reaction today? It's not always, is it? We don't always have the fear in us that we should. Because we're approximately 2,000 years removed from this event. It's not as real to us because we weren't there walking on the streets of Jerusalem. But God tells us the story to teach us the same lesson that it taught the saints in Jerusalem. The gospel of Christ has been revealed. It has been preserved. Why? It's, it's there to save. It is. Ultimately, that's the mission of the gospel. And that's our call, to be ministers of a message of salvation. The gospel has the power to save. Jesus came to save. But that gospel, though, has to be obeyed. <laughs> because it is the message from the one who is sovereign. You think about Matthew's account of the Great Commission. Matthew's account of the Great Commission where he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's verse 19. But then in verse 20, can you remember what it says? Verse 20. And, and teaching them to observe what? All, all that I have taught you. Christ's teaching is to be observed. It is to be upheld by every generation of mankind. Why is that? Because it is the good news of the sovereign king and lord of the universe, the savior of mankind. His word, his teaching, his gospel is to be obeyed. They're they are not simply rules to be broken. No. His gospel is not preserved to be broken. It's preserved to be upheld to save the lost, to save you and me. And a failure to obey the gospel, a failure to obey the gospel and obeying the gospel is a whole lot more than just being baptized. Is it part of it? Is it essential? Yes. You cannot be saved without being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the mission of You will not be saved without obeying that command. But obeying the gospel is so much more than just being baptized. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, those that do not obey the gospel in the end will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the Lord's presence and glory. We don't live in the days of Noah. But that was real. God's wrath was poured out on that generation. We don't live in the days of Moses, but that account is real, it is true. And God poured out his wrath on his son Moses. And he suffered the consequence of that sin. 
we don't live in the days of the judges. And perhaps, as we think about that, aren't you glad you don't and didn't live in the days of Noah, Moses, or the judges? But God poured out his wrath again and again on the sons of disobedience as he compassionately and patiently tried to discipline his children to be a wholly obedient people. We live in the days of the gospel, a message that can save our soul. And we're told here in verse seven, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. That's a good word. It's a fearful word. And we need to fear it. Jesus is going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not just talking about to those that weren't baptized. That's part of it. But the gospel is so much more than just baptism, is it not? And he says, so those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Consequences. Even for believers that disobey. But let's not just entirely end in the thought because this chapter is really a chapter of hope. It's addressed to people who are determined to live their life obeying the gospel. Christians, in spite of what they're going through, beside the hardships, beside the affliction, the persecution, they are determined to try to keep the faith, to fight the good fight and finish the race. That's their determination. And he says, and for those, they, they are said. He says, now on the one hand, God is going to justly, through his son, pour out retribution on disobedience. God is going to do this. Remember, these Christians are in the middle of a fight. And it looks like they're on the losing side. And God says, you're not. You're not on the losing side. You're on the winning side because in verse 10, when he comes, yes, he's going to deal out retribution. So let's don't forget there are consequences to disobedience, to disregarding the authority of the sovereign one. He says, but when he comes to do that, he's coming also to be glorified in his saints. On that day, on that same day, that retribution is poured out on humanity because they reject God, they reject his authority because they don't want to be constrained by his rules. On that day, those who submit, those who keep their allegiance, those who give a defense for the faith, those saints on that day will be, glorif- will be glorified to be marveled at all among all who believe for our testimony to you was believed. That's the day we're living for. That's what we're longing for. But let us not be swayed by empty words of our times because 
All men throughout time have always been accountable to God. That has always been the case. This is not a new message. That man is accountable to the creator and wrath is poured out against sin. The Bible story is constantly driving that point home. Their lives were judged, our lives will be judged, and are being judged right now. Because God will not be ignored. He will not be ignored any longer. God will not be disrespected anymore. The day is coming that God's wrath will be poured out on the sons of disobedience, those that don't know God and those that do not obey the gospel. 1 Peter 4 says, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. What do you mean that? Yes, that's what it says. On the judgment day, who's the front, who, who are the ones in the, in the front of the line? You are not going to be at the back of the line. If you are of the household of God, if you, if you are an adopted child of the Savior, he says, you're right up here at the front of the line. Because judgment is going to begin at God's house. It's going to begin with God's family. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? When Paul tells us what the outcome is in in 2 Thessalonians 1, and other places as well, what will be the outcome of those who disregard the authority of God the Father the authority of God the Son, and authority of God the Holy Spirit. What's going to be their outcome? Retribution. Eternal separation from the presence and glory of their creator. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? God is sovereign. His authority is sovereign. And so therefore, his inspired word, his inspired word is sovereign. The big question is for all of us to ask ourselves and to answer in accord with God's calling and God's instruction is, okay, what am I going to do with that authority? What will be my response to the authority of my creator and the authority of my Lord and King Jesus Christ and the authority of the Holy Spirit who has revealed to us the very mind of God to us? You know, you know what is my response? And depending on what that response is determines what side of the fence you're on, what side of the battle you're on whether you're on the winning side or you're on the losing side. There is a winning side. And the winning side is with Jesus. If you're not with Jesus tonight, we want to call you and urge you to give your life to Him. If you believe that God is, and you believe that Jesus Christ is His Son, and He died on Calvary's cross, For the sins of mankind, you believe that, but you've not acted upon your faith. Then you're not saved. 
you are in a state of condemnation. And the consequences of that state are dire and severe and will be eternal if you don't change. We want to help you with that. If you're ready to confess your faith with your mouth before others and repent of your sin and to, and to be buried with Christ in baptism, we're ready to help you do that. God will save you. Jesus will save you. We won't save you. But He will. Because God is faithful and true. And if you're a child of God, that maybe there is some sin in your life that you've not repented of and you've not taken it to your Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, if we can pray with you or pray for you, let, let us know your needs. If we can help you anyway spiritually, please come now. We stand and sing the song that's been selected.